Part of the reason why you become depressed about suffering is you have no reason to know where it's going or why it is anything. It's just vague amorphous. But if you're saying, I don't know everything about this suffering, but I know that there's a good God who will deal with suffering. That's a storyline you're in. Most people struggling with deep anxiety and deep depression have either lost the sense of a storyline or don't have a storyline as to where that's going. Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews and today I'm bringing you a discussion I had with Stephen McAlpine. Now Steve is an author, a public intellectual and a theologian and we're going to be talking about youth mental health, specifically anxiety. Of course there are a plethora of mental health issues that are making their presence felt in this day and age. But Steve argues, and I think quite convincingly, that anxiety is the main culprit. In our discussion, we examine the causes of this mental health pandemic and how we, as members of a Christian learning community, can love others with the very love of Christ. Now, this is going to be based on his article in the Christian Teachers Journal, but you're not going to have any trouble at all wrapping your head around it if you don't have a copy of that journal. As always, know that we prayed for you. We pray that no matter what your role is in the Christian learning community, whether you're a parent or a student or a teacher or another community member, that you would be powerful and effective in your ministry, calling the anxious to rest in Christ. And of course, if you find this discussion instructive, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. It helps me out a whole bunch. And I encourage you also to share it with others. I firmly believe Steve's message is a timely one and that it's going to benefit a whole lot of people. Well, Stephen McAlpine, welcome back to the Christian Education Podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Things happen quickly. They do indeed. Now, you have been a very busy fellow over the last little while. We've kept in touch periodically, and you always seem to be in a different time zone whenever I'm texting you. Tell us, what have you been up to over the last little while? I've done a little bit uh, all over the place, I think, uh, Melbourne and Sydney in particular. So I was speaking at the Christian Education National uh, sort of uh, executive and principals conference and their AGM, just dealing with all of the changes that are going on culturally and how we need to uh, lean into those and how to address those and the complexities around them, things that we don't know, so many moving parts. And then also helping out with uh, schools like the Anglican schools in Sydney with their interns, uh, young guys and girls coming through as teachers and what that means for them in the next 30 years of uh being a Christian teacher in, a, in an education setting, what might that look like uh, and what might be the challenges they face as well as the opportunities they've got. And- well, it's a, it's a really interesting space in the church schools, the Anglican schools. I know many of the schools you would be dealing with from CEN, Christian Education National, like Calvin Christian School, my school and others like it. We have 100% Christian staff. We don't have 100% Christian students, but staff across the board, whether you're a teacher, a groundsman or a receptionist, you're a Christian. And that that makes the uh, cultural preservation of the legacy and the heritage of the school not easy, but simple. I, I always think when it comes to the Anglican mob and you've got not just a mixed enrollment, but you've got mixed staff, I'm not saying you can't preserve the heritage and culture, but I am saying it would be more complex by a matter of, like, a factor of 10. Yes, 100%, which is why I think uh, you shouldn't give something up too quickly because you won't get it back. And I think that's where a Christian uh, parent-controlled, you know, historically parent-controlled Christian schools and Christian schools with 100% Christian staff are having to face that down at the moment. Because unless, I think, in, in the Anglican system, if you can 
the best you can get, I think, in some of the in the open enrolment, open employment schools, is a really thick, solid uh, religious instruction centre uh, with well-being staff who are Christian, and that can permeate out. But it's a different setting altogether. Uh, and what you want to do is make what you end up getting often is you can reduce it to moralistic therapeutic deism at Old Chestnut of uh, what what is Christian education? It's about good values. Well, you know. What school says it's about bad values, secular or, or independence? <laughs> doesn't happen, right? That's exactly right. And we're actually going to talk about moralistic therapeutic deism today. We've slipped quite naturally into our conventional gear of discussion, which is about faith and schools and legislation. But actually today, we're going to talk about a more pastoral matter. So you've written an article for the upcoming May edition of the Christian Teachers Journal, where you take aim at anxiety within the student body. Are you able to give us just a brief overview of what you've written in that article? Yeah, look, I think what I did was explore the issue of anxiety in the sense that at the moment it's the it's the mental health uh, issue of the, of the generation, right? And uh, my wife had said during watching the Olympics, uh, that that anxiety is the uh, gold medal podium winner in, in the mental health Olympics at the moment. And it's pervaded the culture at a time when, on the paper, we've never been so well off and we never lived as long and probably never been as safe from invading hordes, so to speak, as maybe uh, the Middle Ages or across Central Europe or even Sub-Saharan Africa even now in many places of the world. But there's a deep anxiety and a malaise at the centre of the culture. And what I'm saying is, and I'm riffing a little bit on Jonathan Haidt and some of his stuff from New York University and the research he's done, that at the same time that we're ramping up the level of oversight of our young people to try and craft a life for them as good as possible, the levels of anxiety are through the roof. And the levels of, as Haidt puts it, self-derogation, the insecurity and unsureness of young people about themselves is massive. And uh, Mark Sayers says part of that issue has to be that we've got a an opportunity and experience bucket that's very, very full, but we've got a meaning and purpose bucket that's really, really empty. And those two things are actually part of the issue as to why people are anxious. You've got every opportunity to do everything you want to do, but you're not sure why and not sure that that's the direction you should go in. And those things are playing off against each other. And there are, you know, wider issues of uh, it's not as if we're less religious in some senses anymore. We're, we're more religious and more hot about other issues in our culture and that causes anxiety as well. Do you have something to add to the great conversation about Christian education? Do you feel like you've got something to say but you can't quite figure out how you want to do it? Well, let me plant this little seed right here. Why not be a guest host on the Christian Education Podcast? If you've got a microphone and you've got something to say about Christian education, I'd love to hear from you. You know, Christian education is central to God's plan to grow His kingdom from the smallest seed into the biggest tree. And if you want to sow into that movement through the medium of podcasts, I'd love to talk to you. Just email me at the address in the show notes. You can also reach me on Twitter or LinkedIn or MySpace. Well, maybe not MySpace, but Twitter and LinkedIn should get you where you need to go. Let's get back to the discussion. So it's pretty clear to us that there is something wrong with the youth. Now... Let me read you this quote. I want, to, I want to get your temperature on this. So I found this quote, and I think it's an excellent one. It says, We live in a decaying age. Young people no longer respect their parents. They're rude. They're impatient. They always get drunk, and they have no self-control. 
So many people are hearing that and giving a hearty amen. But believe it or not, Steve, these words were actually found on a 6,000-year-old Egyptian tomb. So that the idea that there's something wrong with our youth, I find actually is a tale as old as time. So my question to you then is, are things actually getting worse for our youth? Or is this just a rinse and repeat of the same thing that every generation says? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, and the, in one sense, the way to answer that is to say, there's not something wrong with our youth, there's something wrong with our humanity, uh, humans themselves. So if that was written on a team 6,000 years ago, that kind of makes sense to me. If I read it through the lens of the human condition. So, if, for example, Thomas Chalmers, the crusty Puritan who has a couple of great sermons that you can read online, has one called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And every youth down every year, he, what he says is that the, the problem isn't the dissolute youth who's out drinking and being disrespectful to parents. That's a rite of passage, right, for every generation, it seems. Um, the issue is at the human heart, there's always something that is idolatrous. And when you're young, that's pleasure. And Chalmers says, uh, you shift that out because at 25, you can't go out clubbing anymore without taking two days to recover, right? So, but it changes as you get opportunity in career. And he says, the, the young person who was into toys as a kid is suddenly into pleasure when they're uh, in their teens and 20s. That shifts to uh, work ethic when they're in their 20s and 30s. And then that shifts to power maybe in their 40s and 50s. And then legacy in their 60s. What am I leaving the world? And Chalmers says, uh, you know, down the end of the drinking culture, that looks pretty rough. But at every stage, the human heart is idolatrous. It's looking for something to put at its centre. And he says, unless you have Christ at the centre, you can't dethrone these other things. Now, it's instructive that those words are written on an Egyptian tomb in one of the most idolatrous cultures of the... <laughs> that person died idolatrous. They just didn't die as a drinking young person, presumably. <laughs> but in one sense... What's happened, I think, it, it's it's about meaning and purpose in all of those levels. And anxiety isn't just in our young people. You're starting to see it bleed into other uh, generations as well. And it's really interesting what you said, that Mark Sayers was commenting that we have as many opportunities as we've ever had before. In fact, opportunities are running over. You can get a good idea and in six or eight days, you can be talking to a, a programmer from India. You can be talking to a distributor in China. You can be talking to someone in LA about your intellectual property. The world is truly open for business. There's no doubt about that. And the funny thing about that is that for many people was their savior, opportunity and technology. You talked about us all being religious, and that's something that we in our sort of reform school of thought have always known. Everyone is religious. Everyone has that seed of religion within them that John Calvin talked about, yet that gets expressed in a multiplicity of ways. Just because someone isn't going to a chapel on a Sunday doesn't mean they're not religious. That religious impulse will invariably squeeze itself out. And for many people, that has been in the yearning for more technology and more opportunities. But the interesting thing we see here is that nowadays, as many have commented, as Sayers has said, we have more opportunities. We have more technology. We have more choice than ever before. If you cast your mind back, I guess, to medieval Europe, as you mentioned before, you base, if I was a young bloke now, I would have to do the exact same thing as my father. Now, that's a bit of a moot point because I myself actually am doing the exact same thing as my father. Uh, however, I would ha I'll be forced to do it, and in which case I would probably be less happy uh, with it. 
we're also thinking of people living, being born and dying in a 2K radius, right? So incredibly small lives. So now we have more choice, we have more options, and there'd be a sizable chunk of our society that would vehemently argue that's a really, really good thing. So my question to you is, is our move towards more choice uh, and more self-expression, is it a good thing, is it a bad thing, or is it a little bit of both? I'll say it's a little bit of both, but I'll, I'll, I'll check you there and say if you had been in the medieval era, Middle Ages, and you'd done the same thing as your father, you wouldn't have known whether you'd have thought that was a good thing or a bad thing because once choice is taken out of it, uh, it dials down the anxiety. And part of our anxiety in our culture is that choice is so dialed up that, you know, I mean, there's a bit of FOMO in that, I guess, but it's also who am I supposed to be? And at the same time that we're being told that you create who you are yourself, we're playing it out before a worldwide audience. Uh, it, the social media aspect of it's massive, and, and Jonathan Hyde has something to say about that as well. But as my wife has observed, some of the most insecure people that she's dealt with who are around 23, 24 are young women who went through very good schools and were told they could be anything they wanted to be, and now they're finding that didn't actually work the way they thought it was going to work, and they're unsure of who they are. And... In one sense, what we're telling people is that choice is the God. So it, it, people don't care really if you're a Christian as long as you've chosen that. Uh, but they're saying the whole point of your life is you get to choose and only you know who you really are in order to be able to choose. And that is, as Tim Keller would say, it makes a very fragile modern person because there's only one person to blame if those choices don't come out golden, and that's you. And so... In the sense, when you take the, uh, it's we can't live without transcendence. But if you take God out of the transcendent picture, something's got to be transcendent in your framework. And if it's you or choice or whatever it is, it's a lot of weight to bear if it fails. And the medieval era just didn't have, you don't have as much choice. But it also had a view of the way the world was put together that said, here's why choice is limited, because there are barriers to you. And if you're telling people everyone gets a trophy, there are no barriers to what you can do, by the time you're 32 or 33, you're already ageing and you're not as fast as you once were. <laughs> you may have a bit more hair growing out of your ears and a little less growing on your head. And you realise that that window is very small and people get frantic because of that. It's really interesting that you say that choosing who we want to be and constructing our identity is a burden because for many people that actually seems like an excellent idea until of course they try it because I just think if we bring this back to an anthropological level that's not what we were designed for we weren't designed to actually labor under the burden of constructing ourselves God gives us an identity and we see it very clearly in the scriptures God gives us a vocation he gives us work to do so all of a sudden when it comes to who I am uh, what the world is uh, and how I act within it, there are a lot of very sure footings within the Christian worldview. But if you get rid of that, all of a sudden you're sort of set adrift. As I read your article and you were describing this as a burden, you know, laboring under the weight of your own identity construction, I thought about it as if say for argument's sake, the government issued everyone an 80 kilogram backpack and they had to wear it all the time no matter what. And all of a sudden, we start saying, wow, there's an absolute pandemic of sprained ankles and stress fractures and people are blowing out their knees and lower back more than ever before. We would rightly say, well, 
we are not meant to carry that burden. But it seems as if people are not actually connecting the dots when it comes to their identity construction and the mental health pandemic that we are seeing at the same time. Why do you think people are not making that connection, Steve? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, they've decided that this is just the way it is. So part of that is, as Charles Taylor calls it, the social imaginary, that the water we swim in says that's what life's like, that's the way it's supposed to be, and uh, to choose anything else is to to do violence to the individual choice. Um, I often quote Dale Dale Kuhn's book, Sex in the Eye World, and it talks about uh, the weight of having to choose. And Alan Noble talks about that. It's your responsibility, not just your responsibility, it's your duty to choose who you are. And uh, suddenly you find that in communities where you don't have to do that all the time, certain things, you lose certain liberties. And so here's the question, where's the the balance point of uh, liberty uh, when some choices are taken away from you, uh, how should you live? And should all choices be taken away from you? But I think that's that's the question we're grappling with. Uh, what, what's a free-for-all? So, and it comes down to extremes when you think about the gender identity issues currently sort of ravaging the culture, especially among young people, uh, where adults are saying, well, that young person has the right completely to choose who they want to be by the age of 10 and who they think they are. Well, there's a 160-kilo backpack put on the age on a 10-year-old, which takes into consideration nothing to do with paediatrics, uh, child psychology, uh, or physiology, all those sorts of things. And we're taking those identity issues and absolutizing them. So we're making them the biggest only thing uh, in what we're doing. And I think that's problematic. It absolutely is problematic, isn't it? And The idea that you can construct several key parts of your identity, that's fine. Uh, I've done that, you've done that, we've all done that. But as soon as there's a gun to your head saying you have to start from scratch, it may even be a dishonourable thing to follow in the path that was set before you by your ancestors. There's a, a moral value to charting a whole new path. Well, that does become very, very paralysing. And we see that in our schools. We see that in our schools quite uh, clearly. Some of the statistics that were brought to our attention by our counsellor last year was that suicide is actually the leading cause of death for our young people in Australia. That's eye-watering, isn't it? As you've said, in many ways, there's never been a better time to be alive. I had to have some dental work done the other day. I'm glad I wasn't living 600 years in the past, having to get my tooth yanked out while I'd had a strong drink. You know, I, I was I was incredibly glad for anaesthetic. In some ways, we've got it so good, yet our young people, and in fact, many of our middle-aged and elder people as well, they are absolutely dying under this burden. Now, we know as Christians, Steve, that, that Jesus is the answer to this. However, that can just become a trite truism at times. I, I remember hearing a story of a bloke on an American campus where there was a local sort of group of almost Jesus hippies and they were handing out these flyers saying, you know, nuclear weapons. This was in the 60s and 70s. Nuclear weapons? Well, Jesus is the answer. And so he went up and said, oh, Jesus is the answer. And they said, yeah, sure he is. And he said, how? What's the, what's the answer? And of course, what they were saying is, you know, Jesus will make you feel so good that you won't even worry about the nuclear bombs. But I think we can press in further for better answers than that. 
So we, we have a, this pandemic of mental health amongst our youth. They're crumbling under the weight of this 80 kilo existential backpack. What actually is the answer? How is Jesus the answer for these young people, Steve? <laughs> wow, now that you put it like that. Um, <laughs> I think what you need to first do is there needs to be a deconstruction process, right? And so books like Brian Rosner's book, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer, it, what it's very helpful in doing is unpacking the, 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 culture, the baseline cultural narratives. And I think in schools, what you get, you get a, a bunch of young people in a school who've got the baseline cultural narrative of this is what we're supposed to do and how we achieve ourselves is to find ourselves. One sense you have to expose that and deconstruct it a little bit and then put it against the biblical understanding of identity and what it means to truly be who you are and realise that somewhere along the line, um, there's a coming apart. So many of the things that we say are good for our identity work for a certain le- length of time under certain conditions. And so if life's well going well and you're young and you're beautiful and you're working in Hollywood, uh, you can tick a lot of boxes. <laughs> but something, suffering will always come in. So what the modern world can't deal with is the issue of suffering. Right? So I think part of what we have to do first is deconstruct people's idea of what the good life is and whether they're even owed a good life and then ask the question of suffering. And then you go back to if, if there's an answer to this, it must be found in how suffering and death is dealt with. And then you go back to uh, bring that down to base level. What does the Bible say about that, for example? Why does death exist? And most people who say, well, death is just death, don't actually existentially feel that about death. We fear death, right? So they could say all that all they like, but they don't live that way. And that's Ernst Becker's book, The Denial of Death, a uh, very important book about the issue that we're in denial about death. So I think actually deconstructing is probably the first thing we need to do, especially with students, because so many of them come with a whole constructed framework and social imaginary. But also then you want to show uh, the biblical framework of how the world's put together. And I think this is critical that um, you've got, in order for the Bible to be understandable or even plausible to people in its framework, you've got to say, there's a heaven above, there's a hell below, there's an earth in the middle, and these things leak. Things go, It's porous. It, it, things move between it, <laughs> these realms. And the Bible re- requires that category for you to understand who Jesus is, who God is, what it means to die, what it means to be separate, separated from God. So in one sense, I think part of our issue is to deconstruct the worldview and rebuild a different worldview into people and then say, now put on those glasses and now look at the world. Look at identity through the eyes of that framework rather than a secular framework. I think that's the first thing you've got to do. The Christian Education Podcast is brought to you by Teaching in Tassie. At Christian Education National Schools in Tassie, you can make a difference. You have the freedom to express your faith and values, of course, with Jesus right at the centre. Tasmania's beautiful environment has space to breathe. We have amazing food and wine, wilderness to explore. There's an adventure right on your doorstep. There are endless opportunities. I've got to tell you, it's almost perfect. To sign up or learn more, visit teachingintassie.com.au and you'll be the first to know when there's a career available. Who knows? It may just have your name on it. Let's get back to the discussion. I want to try and tease out something you've said there. So you you said that we need to bring suffering front and center as Christian educators. 
And to me, it just looks like there's an irony there because with this mental health crisis, that's obvious suffering. There is so much suffering going on in our young people more than ever before. Yet, are you saying that that suffering in that cohort is arising out of the fact that they're not engaging with any worldview of suffering? They're not actually thinking about suffering. They don't have a worldview that makes sense of suffering. Therefore, they're suffering. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is uh, there's two ways to answer suffering and what's going on there is to explore suffering and then you can anaesthetise against it. (laughs) And that's probably what we're doing as much as anything. How can I numb that pain rather than how can I explore what's going on underneath that pain and what is suffering about? Because the Bible doesn't say suffering is good for you uh, per se, uh, you know, take your oatmeal, get on with it. It's saying there's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with the world that has brought suffering in. And we don't get out of this without suffering because of human, you know, sin, pain, death, uh, things that people do to you as well as things that you do to people. And what I think the robust view of suffering is also not just that I suffer, but that I'm a cause of suffering to others as well. And if you can't get to that point, it just leaves you as victim only and not perpetrator because I think you have to have victim and perp together. Now, that doesn't mean to say I'm saying that things that happened to you were your fault necessarily. I'm just saying it's a much, because you've got to be very careful how you word that, especially in a school setting, that many terrible things happen to students. But from God's perspective, we are both victims and perpetrators. And God himself takes on suffering in our place. And I, I think if you don't have a theological position that's robust with a um, a view that God himself knows what suffering is, it's very hard to understand how to deal with suffering. But at the same time, you're saying we've been told, suffer, you know, parents, etc., cetera, uh, perhaps have bulldozed life for their kids so that they avoid suffering at all costs for as long as possible, and then something happens. And I think that's probably an unrealistic way to look at the world. It's really interesting that you talk about anaesthetizing ourselves here. I had a very interesting conversation with a friend after we watched a video together about youth mental health. We both had decided that this was something we needed to wrap our heads around because we were just seeing it play out in schools, uh, whether our own or others like it. And what we, what we actually came away with from this particular mental health educator was that depression, for example, is sometimes a really good response to your circumstances. So if you're completely socially isolated, if you're uh, alienated from every friendship group and you have dysfunctional relationships with your family, if your body is not healthy physically, it's actually a good thing to be sad about that. That's a cause for mourning. In the scriptures, we would put that under the category of lamenting. I feel really bad because I live in a broken situation amongst broken people in a broken world. However, if you have a framework that says, if you feel depressed, you must be medicated. You must feel good. Well, what are you going to do then? You're going to treat the symptom and not the cause. It's the old Band-Aid on cancer trick, isn't it? You're not actually going to do anything to address the underlying symptoms. So you might have someone taking antidepressants who's feeling pretty jolly good about their completely disintegrated life. And, of course, that's not the answer either, is it? No. And, look, uh, Tim Keller, in a great sermon on suffering, speaks about Job tearing his garments and throwing dust on his head and wailing. Um, 
in light of all the bad news he hears about his life and his kids dying and things. And it says, though, in all of this, Job did not sin. So the angst about it, the terror of it, isn't a sinful thing itself. And then you go to the Psalms, and John Piper says that if um, there were, you wouldn't have three quarters of the Psalms if everyone was being medicated in the back in the day, because it's why you can't downcast, oh my soul. Um, and then the flip side is hope, therefore, in the Lord, right? So there's a, but if my soul is downcast and all I can do is dull that then that's not reality. What I think the scripture brings, and it's beautiful, is that it, it leans into suffering to the bottom of the depths and then it says, yet there is hope, yet there is hope. And God then steps into that in Christ and brings goes to suffering to the depths and then there's hope. And it's a part of that's about the narrative to which we belong, that if the narrative of ours is we suffer now, the good things are given to us in this, but if the Christian message is there's glory coming, then suffering now you can understand. You don't have, you can sh try to shape, you, part of what we do as Christians, we want to alleviate suffering in people. That's why there's medicine. That's why there's Christian doctors and hospitals. That's why they're, you know, we're not Eastern philosophy people who say it's your karma. We're saying, no, it's wrong. And we know why it's wrong. Part of the reason why you become depressed about suffering is you have no reason to know where it's going or why it is anything. It's just vague amorphous. But if you're saying, I don't know everything about this suffering, but I know that there's a good God who will deal with suffering, that's a storyline you're in. Most people struggling with deep anxiety and deep depression have either lost the sense of a storyline or don't have a storyline as to where that's going. And you know that yourself. If you are feeling down, you, you sort of pull out of the story that you know is true and everything then becomes, well, it can't be this, it can't be that. You know, All these things are wrong. And I, I don't say that lightly because I think uh, Mark Sayers says there's there's specific anxiety that you need to go and get medication for, but there's a generalised anxiety in the culture that's just come across us like a pall, and that's a problem. The book of 1 Peter is an excellent example of how we as Christians can live in a world that is in some ways uh, quite fallen and broken and even hostile to the Christian faith, yet live in a story that is flooded with hope. Uh, many people have called Peter the apostle of hope. And all you need to do is read through 1 Peter, commit certain passages to memory, make that part of your DNA, and that will stand you in good stead. And actually, as a Christian educator, it will allow you to be a really effective witness. Because I'm convinced, Steve, many people say we're in a really difficult position when it comes to evangelism and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ amongst our student cohort. Now, that's true. In many ways, the dominant Christian narrative is no longer the flavor of the month as it was um, decades ago. So we do have that against us. So the bar in some ways is high. But in other ways, I've got to tell you, the bar has never been lower. If you can just be someone who's not crippled with self-loathing and anxiety, that's actually going to stand out as a shining light to many students out there. That's, now, that's a low bar, isn't it? Not saying that's easy to do. Of course, we've all got things that we have to deal with. But if we can be well put together people, not through our own strength, but because of the work that the Holy Spirit has done in us, if we can be uh, people with integrity, if we can act uh, as Christians who belong to a heavenly Father who knows who know that He will take care of us, well, then that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. 
Oh, 100%. And uh, look, I, I've written obviously about how difficult things can be in my book, Being the Bad Guys. But what I'm writing at the moment is saying I think the green shoots are there because there's, there is a sense in which Christians who are in community with other Christians who have a hope in the gospel are the non-anxious people in the culture. Um, they don't have to be absolutely riven by anxiety, corporate anxiety in that sense. And Mark Sayers writes about that in his book, Non-Anxious Presence, and what that means. Uh, but personally, it's, and I've written about this myself, my year eight form teacher, Mr. Beals, <laughs> as a teacher in a non-Christian school who I go to that school in year eight because uh, you went to high school in year eight back in the medieval era. And, <laughs> and he was my form teacher and I was like, who is this guy? He's, who's the Dumbledore of teaching who's so good and so non-anxious and everyone loves him and he's just chilled out. And then I went to the Christian Union a couple of weeks later and he was leading it. I was like, oh, he's a Christian guy. And it was his only year of teaching and he was only 24. But there's something about him that everyone just felt, oh, there's something about this man. And it, even then, that's back in the that's back in 1980. And there was something Christian, there was something I knew was Christian about him, but other people go, wow, he's just different. And that was amazing. It's funny, you hear of people like John Piper. Uh, and one of the things he said over and over is that the thing my congregation needs for me more than anything else is my personal joy in the Lord. That's what they need from me. So the thing that I can best do for this large corporate body is be integrated within myself, uh, is be, be worshipping the Lord, be loving the Lord, keeping short accounts with God and leaning on Him, which is funny because that's what the church needs most, but it's not a marketing strategy, right? It's, it's not a church growth strategy. And I'm starting to see from what you're saying here, the same exact thing is true for educators. When it comes to our witness in our schools, the thing that our students need most from us is actually a well-integrated Christianity. That is actually the most powerful form of evangelism, or we may say pre-evangelism, that there is. Yeah, look, if, if the major problem among our young people is this joyless anxiety and fear, then the antidote must be uh, a joy-filled hope. And, and you're not afraid of some of the more um, confronting, pressing things that young people come with their identity issues to school. So lots of people are coming with their identity issues, young people to school, to Christian schools, and they're sort of throwing it, you know, they're presenting it like the cat presenting a dead mouse on the mat and saying, will you still accept me if I'm like this? And you're going, this is complex, but I want to show you what a joyful, non-fearful life looks like, which points you beyond yourself as a source of your identity to someone who... Jesus was a man of sorrows, but he was also very a joy. It must have been a joy to be around him, right? And the same Peter, who is full of hope and joy in his letters, is the same Peter who cut off the ear of the servant um, and was ready to fight to the death because he 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 hadn't grasped the joy set before him. Until he did post resurrection, he couldn't get it. He was still trying to hold tight onto what he had and he didn't realize letting that go was actually going to be the doorway to his joy so we as christian teachers we want to be a non-anxious presence in our schools and i don't think a more timely word could be added from you steve because 
there's a certain group of people out there, and we'll talk, since you raised the LGBT uh, issue, let's talk about that for a second. There, there are some people out there who are struggling with those issues, and they're anxious and nervous and filled with doubt, all right? So I myself, I'm wondering if I'm actually a female trapped in a male's body or whether I'm pansexual, all this sort of stuff. So I'm over there and I'm anxious. However, the antidote to that is not me running right over to the other wing of politics and being anxious over there. I mean, that's that's not compelling to anyone. What you're saying is um, we don't fight fire with fire in this case. Our, anxio- our non-anxious presence as educators is actually like a fire blanket. And if, we, if we're getting all worked up and lighting our hair on fire and freaking out about challenges facing our schools or about certain people with identity uh, differences or, or alternate views, well, well, then we're actually not necessarily helping the situation. We're just being anxious in a different area. Yes, and look, obviously there are... The, the schools are going to have to have clarity around some of those matters because they have ramifications. And we don't want the government saying, you must do this, you must do that. I think that's, those are separate issues. However, I think for young uh, gender or identity-confused students across any issue, not even just gender, lots of identity issues outside of that, but that seems to be the, the shibboleth one at the moment, uh, coming into a setting where the teachers just aren't anxious is absolutely crucial. And they're not anxious because there's there's a reason not to be anxious because of Jesus and who he is. And that doesn't mean you affirm everything, but it means you're not scared of everything. And so we're, we're saying we're going to judge each person on the dignity they have. And this school will be the safest place that those people can be, even if we're not celebrating it with different colours all the time. And I, I think you, the stories that will come that will help the schools will be from those students who went, you know, they didn't agree with me, they didn't uh, sort out, you know, didn't agree with everything I said or celebrate everything I did, but, gee, they loved me and cared for me, and when I needed the support, they didn't go, well, you've got to tick these six boxes to get it, and I think that's going to be critical. And probably at the moment that story is not being told to the Age or the Sydney Morning Herald or the ABC, but we know it's happening because you speak to the boards, you speak to the executives, you speak to the teachers, and there's lots of cases like that. Absolutely. And I certainly hope many people are telling that story to those outlets. And part of me perhaps has an inkling that the story is being told and it may be falling on deaf ears, and I certainly hope that's not the case. Now, as we draw to the finish line here, as we enter into the final 100 metres of our conversation, Steve, we've talked about teachers being a non-anxious presence and the potent gospel witness that that can be. Have you got any other advice for teachers? We're dealing with a student cohort, and as we said, they're suffering like you wouldn't believe. They're facing challenges. Um, they're facing technology that no other generation has ever had to face, and it's clearly having a toll. They're anxious, and that's just not only, as you said, a specific thing. They're not just anxious about one or two things. It's the flavor of the month. Anxiety is pervasive. So what can we do as teachers? What advice would you have for us as we are in and around these students every single day? Well, I'd say this carefully. Uh, it's okay to tell people, students, some of your own anxieties. Now, you don't have to, you know, appropriately <laughs> um, and at a level that respects the power differential that you have. 
I think that's a critical issue. But it's okay to say to people, look, anxiety is not something, I'm not impervious to anxiety myself. I'm not some bright, shiny object, but I have a place to bring my anxiety. And you want to say to them, as a young person, you have anxiety, but there's no stage in life where you won't have anxiety. But there is at every stage in life someone to whom you can bring that anxiety. And if you go back to your Egyptian issue, <laughs> there's always some idol in your heart that replaces God, and there's always some anxiety in your heart that obscures God. And if you can be the kind of person that every stage in your life show what it looks like to not be anxious and not have an idol but have Jesus on the throne and not obscured, I think that will start to show. So you want to open your life up a little bit to students without, you know, in an inappropriate way. Uh, without telling everything about your life, but also teaching staff together, working out your own problems, uh, not have kids, students can pick up what's going on between staff and you want to see a staff that is working together in a non-anxious way with each other and how that works out as well. Well, Steve, it has been absolutely enlightening talking to you about uh, the mental health issues facing our students and how we can respond as educators. Before I let you go, just remind us once more, where can people go to get more Stephen McAlpine? All right, uh, stephenmcalpine.com. That's with a PH, uh, Stephen and uh, McAlpine.com. That's my blog. And I also work for City to City Australia. So if you do actually want to engage with me and uh, come to your school or whatever, speak, you can go to the City to City Australia page, uh, website, and there'll be a page there with a request form or just to even contact me, that would be fine. It's been a treat talking with you, Stephen. We thank you so much for your insightful comments and we wish you all the best in the year to come. Thanks, Paul. It's been great talking to you again.